Hi, I'm Nicole Sanford. I'm the CEO of Aspire Women's Health. And Femtech to me is giving uh, women and their doctors tools to make better decisions about their care that are based on facts instead of fear. Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast, brought to you by Fem Health Insights, the leaders in women's health market research and consulting. In this show, we have meaningful and provocative conversations with Fem Health experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto, and today's episode, I interview Nicole Sanford, CEO of Aspira Women's Health. Nicole has an extensive experience as an innovator, business leader, and sought-after advisor on strategy, operations, human capital, governance, and risk. Prior to joining Aspira, Nicole advised Fortune 500 companies and spent over 27 years at Deloitte, launching and leading all aspects of operations for multiple businesses. Nicole has won numerous awards, including the NACD 2022 Directorship Award and Yale School of Management Rising Star Award. Aspira Women's Health is a U.S.-based, publicly traded company that is dedicated to the discovery, development, and commercialization of novel, high-value diagnostic and bioanalytical solutions that help physicians improve gynecological health outcomes for all women. They currently have a blood test for risk assessment of ovarian cancer for women with ovarian masses. This test is critical for making medical decisions about whether or not an ovary needs to be removed and who should actually be performing the surgery, the gynecologist or an oncologist. In this interview, we discuss the current state of gynecological health for women, the biology and testing process for being diagnosed ovarian cancer, and what it's like being a publicly traded women's health company. This is a great opportunity to learn more about ovarian cancer and getting diagnostic tests for women's health to market. Learn more and get your stock at AspiraWH.com. That's Aspira, A-S-P-I-R-A-W-H, standing for women's health.com. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Nicole, welcome to the show. Hey, Brittany. Thanks so much for having me. It is a pleasure to have you. Saw you last year at the Women's Health Innovation Summit in Boston. I think is like the mecca of Women's Health Innovation Conference. I tell founders, if you're going to put your money into going to a conference, that's the one. Uh, would you agree? Or is there another femtech conference I'm I'm shortchanging? Well, it's nice to have options. I mean, we couldn't have said that a few years ago. I met a lot of great people at the conference, including you. Um, and I was really impressed with the with the speakers and the and the content. So it was a good conference. Yep, that's the one I go to, y'all. I think there it's in September that's happening again this year. So keep going great. to that. Well, I'm sure I'll see you there. <laughs> yes. Well, um, where are you calling us from today, by the way? So I'm in Connecticut. Um, Aspira, our, our Clio Labs in Austin, Texas, but our back office and our cor- corporate headquarters is based here in Connecticut. Awesome. Great. Well, let's kick off the interview learning more about you and Aspira. Um, our listeners love to also hear your journey into how you got into women's health. Most of us didn't, you know, go to college with a femtech degree yet. I, I hear university <laughs> starting femtech classes, which is awesome. But tell us a little bit about your journey yeah. and then the company. 
Sure, sure. So I actually started out um, as a CPA. Um, I spent almost 30 years at Deloitte. Uh, I had an amazing career. Um, so I you know, started out as an audit partner. I worked in the technology sector um, pretty heavily. Um, and then when I was pregnant with my second daughter, decided that I'd like to try to do something that didn't have me on the road as much because mm. technology companies at that time were um, extremely um, transactional. So it wasn't uncommon at all for me to be working, you know, nights, weekends on deals. So, um, you know, I applied for a role in our national office um, f- focused on corporate governance, which it was a role nobody wanted at the time. But this was, of course, pre-Enron. Um, I was actually in that role when um, the Enron crisis sort of broke and we had Sarbanes-Oxley. And so my career took a really hard right turn at that point. Um, and I had so many amazing opportunities. Um, I ended up working with boards of directors and uh, and CEOs kind of through a really tumultuous time, which really kind of led me to a whole new career. So I actually never really went back to audit fully. I, I started a, a couple of businesses for the firm and realized that I had a knack for that. Uh, and I, I ended up being sort of a startup expert and turnaround person. So if there was a practice that needed a little extra TLC, I'd love to kind of fly in um, you know, do some turnaround work and and uh, kind of hand it off. So I loved that. Um, my time at Deloitte was amazing, and and I had a lot of really uh, great opportunities. Um, but even before COVID, I was starting to get a little bit of a of an itch to do something a little different. Um, I'd had amazing uh, experiences, and decided to retire from Deloitte and um, go out and see what else I'd be interested in doing. So, um, you know, uh, right before I retired. I was on a panel um, about resiliency at um, Yale, and I guess I should tell you a little bit of my backstory, personal backstory, to explain how I was on a panel about resiliency at Yale. Um, but I was diagnosed with breast cancer um, for the first time in 2010, um, and uh, and was extremely, you know, early, but monitoring. And then I was diagnosed with with uh, breast cancer in 2016, and decided to kind of go. Uh, um, you know, really preventative in terms of uh, of my surgical intervention. Thankfully, it was caught very early because my team at Yale um, Yale New Haven um, Hospital did a great job on their monitoring program. Maybe someday, if you see me, ask me about that because I have some things to tell people about that too. Um, but you know, I, I was often asked to come talk to women in leadership, and and then in this case, it was an MBA program about you know facing personal. Um, crises without sort of blowing up your career. Um, and while I was on that panel, um, there was a woman there, um, Valerie Palmieri, my predecessor, who was talking about Aspira Women's Health who um, and talked about a blood test for ovarian cancer. Um, well, my grandmother passed away from ovarian cancer. And obviously, as a breast cancer survivor, I was also, you know, at risk, higher risk. I kind of said, there's no way that's a real thing. I would know about that if that was a real thing. Um, but after the work, afterwards, I introduced myself and then I went back and researched the company and saw that, in fact, there was, is, was and is a very high performing in the market blood test available to assess um, ovarian cancer risk uh, for women with masses. And I said to myself, this is super exciting. I want to be a part of it. Bought stock. Um, went and had lunch with Valerie and told her I was looking for, you know, board a board role. Um, and it just so happened that at that time there was a, an opportunity to lead the audit committee. So their audit committee chair was retiring. So um, that's how I, I sort of landed on the board. Um, fast forward to, you know, a year or so later, um, you know, we all know what happened in the um, diagnostic space and sort of broader market, the conditions of really significant headwinds. Um, Valerie decided that she wanted to step into the chairmanship role, and I was given the opportunity by the board um, to come in and lead 
as CEO, and I've been in the role now since uh, since 2022. Um, but you know, I I was was personally connected to the mission then, and I've only become more connected to the mission the more I found out about ovarian cancer, which I have to admit um, is not like breast cancer, where I think a lot of us really understand it um, and understand you know what's being done um, to um, to improve outcomes. I was a little less knowledgeable about ovarian cancer when I joined the board. And now that I've learned more, I realize this is, you know, absolutely where I need to be. So. Wow. Incredible story. Thank you so much for sharing that in your, in your personal endeavors. Um, This is a, this is a publicly traded company, pharmaceutical company, correct? Yeah. And I should say, I also had my ovaries removed. So I'll probably take that off and put it back on like six more times. So I apologize. Uh, But that's a little bit more. I'll talk more about why that matters, um, why your ovaries matter a lot when it comes to that kind of thing. But yeah, so we're publicly traded. We've been publicly traded for quite a while. So um, we were one of the very first um, companies to launch an AI-powered diagnostic tool. Um, I think we're probably the only one still that's um, uh, 100% dedicated to um, gynecological disease detection, um, you know, partnership with, with others that have a broader mandate. But our our sole focus is um, developing diagnostic tools for gynecologic diseases that currently do not have any diagnostic tools. One of the things that we're on a mission to do at Femtech Focus is to bring awareness for the need for women's health innovation. And I think one of the ways that we bring awareness is showing the history of what's happened. And I can remember when I started in the space in 2020, people would literally tell me, well, Femtech will be respected once it has an exit. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure there's like some publicly traded companies. There's been some acquisitions. Uh, By the end of 2020, I had a list of like 130 exits that had happened in the last 30 years. Right. What do you think is like, um, why do you think we had such a lack of knowledge that there were publicly traded women's health companies? Like, did nobody care to categorize it as such? Was it like you were just lumped in with healthcare or do you, and do you think that there was like this missed opportunity to show like, this is a publicly traded women's health yeah. company? Yeah. I mean, I think we still suffer a little bit from, from lack of awareness to be candid with you. Um, you know, I, that's why I still do this. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, unfortunately, I think that it still needs to be done. And quite frankly, I do carry that. Um, I carry that responsibility. Um, and I take it very seriously because, you know, our success is important, not just for my shareholders and for Aspira and for women who are looking to have, um, you know, access to our tools for ovarian cancer, but because I think we have to be successful in order to continue to prove that um, you can make money um, investing in women's health. Um, you know, it's 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 always been a frustration, and I think it's still there. I, I wish I could tell you otherwise. I I um, I do think that part of it too is that we're part of. The, I mean, you're much younger than me, so I'm going to say sort of Gen X myself. Um, you know, we're the first generation that's been comfortable talking about our bodies and talking about um, gynecologic disease. Um, you know, I think about our mother's generation and, and our grandmothers. I mean, you know, if they had a hysterectomy or they had some sort of a, a surgery or some gynecologic um, problem, you didn't even know. And it was your own mother. Like, you know, you'd find out later, like, oh, remember when you were in, you know, second grade and I was sick, I actually had my, you know, uterus removed. But we're much more open. We'll talk to each other about it. We'll talk to our spouses about it. We're not afraid to, you know, discuss it publicly. And so I think that had to happen before people were comfortable saying, 
well, this is a company focused on gynecologic disease, right? So, um, you know, there, there's a whole evolution that had to happen. And I kind of think about what um, the women who came before us had to deal with. I mean, they had to go through all the same things, but with like a whole big bucket of shame and secrecy wrapped around it, which is just awful to think about. But, um, you know, we're here now, which is excellent. Yeah. As a publicly traded company, do you find um, any, you know, experiences as being a specifically women's health that might be different from other publicly traded companies? You think you get asked kind of different types, tones of questions or yeah, you no know, question, yeah. no question. I joke all the time, you know, the first, um, not always because, you know, we get approached by all kinds of different investors, but a lot of times I'll be talking with an investor and this is their first sort of foray into women's health where I have to kind of start with a baseline of, you know, um, because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about uh, women's reproductive organs and saying, well, once you don't, you're not having babies anymore, what do you need all that stuff for? Why wouldn't you just go ahead and take everything out? And so I really like to step back and say, okay, here's what ovaries do. Here's what a uterus does. Here's why you'd want to keep them even when you're done having babies. And, and that's a conversation that I don't think most people have to have in publicly traded space when people come, you know, with a slightly different base of understanding. And, um, you know, frankly, it's not just men, it's women too. I think we've all been sort of sold this idea that it's better to be safe. And the only way to know for sure is to, you know, um, you know, go really extreme. And, um, you know, I'm really looking to re-educate both men and women. Um, and I will say, I, I we are blessed with really amazing fundamental investors that have been in the stock for a long time. They're sticking around, they continue to invest, they understand, and, they, um, and they've and they been incredibly, I mean, not only are they knowledgeable, but they're also, you know, committed. So, you know, and they're mostly men, unfortunately. So my wish list definitely is more female investors in 2024. Um, but, you know, the direct answer to your question is, I do tend to have to set the table a little differently. Mm-hmm. Um, about, you know, the, the need for better diagnostic tools. Well, why don't you tell us some about some of the, uh, tests that you've already created that are in the market and some of that are in the pipeline? Yeah. Yeah. So we have uh, a full suite of ovarian cancer risk assessment blood tests in the market. Currently, we actually have the only suite of ovarian cancer, um, risk assessment blood tests. So that means that, you know, when a woman is diagnosed with an axial mass, which is essentially any you know um, pelvic mass that's sort of adjacent to her on the ovary. Um, you know, the first thing that a doctor needs to do before they can really understand what is the next step when you have an axial mass, um, they have to assess the risk that that's malignant. And why does that matter? Um, obviously, you always want to know if there's cancer present. But, um, you know, who does the surgery if you do decide to do a surgery for an anexal mass that is malignant is really important. Um, you know, ovarian cancer, um, you can't take a needle biopsy like you can with other cancers, like, for example, breast cancer. You find a mass, you could take a tissue sample, see if it's um, cancer. But with ovarian cancer, if you do that, you do risk the likelihood of spreading the, the cancer. Really? Um, why is that different? Yeah. So it's a contained tumor. And when you when you take a tissue sample, you could rupture that and then spread the spread the cancer if it hasn't spread already. So that's also why it's been so hard to, to develop a blood test, because you don't see cancer circulating in the blood as long as it's contained. So while it's an early stage, it's sort of almost like a, it's not a balloon. But think about it like a balloon. It's not 
shedding cells into the bloodstream until it's pretty far along. So, um, you know, you had to find other ways to identify it non-invasively. Also, you could say on an ultrasound, um, you know, it's it's difficult, if not impossible, to be um, definitive about a malignancy on an ultrasound. Some um, really advanced cancers, certainly most ultrasound technicians can identify them properly. But um, for the most part, you'll if you talk to doctors that have uh, in gynecological, gynecological space, they'll tell you it's really difficult to make a definitive diagnosis just from an ultrasound alone. So, so they have a whole bunch of different clinical data in front of them. They understand what the mass looks like on an ultrasound. They understand the family history. Um, you know, they understand the woman's um, the woman's, um, you know, uh, symptomatic profile, like is she a pain? What they then need to say is, okay, based on that, what do I do here? And if it's clearly malignant, certainly the guidelines would tell you, you send that patient to a gynecologic oncologist to have the mass and or the ovary removed, right? And they make that decision. They're specially trained to remove it without spreading the cancer, right? That's why it's so important. And, and if, if uh, your listeners hear nothing else other than, um, it's really important to understand the risk of malignancy before you have a mass removed from your ovary because you want a gynecologic oncologist to do that whenever possible. Um, in this country, there's not enough of them to go around. So you don't want to send people with benign masses to clog up the works with gynox and to um, and it's also more expensive and it's scary, right? Like you'd like to know. So um, you know, so you, so we have, um, tests that will help a doctor when they, when they first see a patient with a mass, um, to decide, you know, what's the likelihood that I'm looking at a malignancy. Now we have two different tests and this gets a little technical, um, depending on whether there's a surgery, surgery already planned, they go down one path. That's our over one plus test. If a surgery is not planned and it's an initial clinical assessment that the doctor's doing, that's a different path. But, you know, the main takeaway is that we have a blood test. Um, within our OVA suite of products for any woman um, who's diagnosed with a mass, and that will give you a much better sense of what you're looking at. Um, you know, that that's in a sense what we have now. Um, I could talk a little bit about our endometriosis um, test in a minute, but I, I want to put a couple of points on why is that important? Why is it important to have, why doesn't everybody just have their ovaries removed as soon as they have a mass? Um, and candidly, that has been the default for some women out of fear um, because they don't they have not trusted the um, the diagnostic tools available to tell them if there's a mass. And what we're learning now with more research is that um, you want to keep your ovaries as long as possible. They used to be, well, if you're done having babies, have your ovaries removed. Then we started to realize that, you know, surgical menopause, which is, you know, I had my ovaries removed preventatively and I went immediately into surgical menopause. And I can tell you that it is no fun. Um, and the number of, of health, um, health and lifestyle challenges that resulted from that, I did not understand before. Um, but we're now seeing that getting rid of taking your ovaries out at all, you, you increase your risk for heart disease, dementia, Parkinson's disease, all of these things, even after menopause, you still get the benefit um, from that, as some studies would say. So, you know, we're really hoping to be able to help doctors and patients identify masses that are concerning and have them removed as soon as possible to improve the chances of survival, but also to stop taking out healthy ovaries. 
and um, make fact-based decisions instead of fear-based decisions. I think that speaks to the evolution of women's health, that our our organs aren't just for baby making, that uh, they need Mm -hmm. to be understood in terms outside of fertility, outside of just a pregnancy, right? How do we, how do we know, what do we know about uteruses, you know, in menopause or in puberty and, you know, outside of just that fertility journey? Um, When you say mass, I'm a big advocate for, we need more research about ovarian cysts. Is a cyst, is a cyst considered a mass or is a different yeah so any 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 um mass would be um considered an exo mass so it's pelvic and again you know i started by saying i started out as a cpa i'm not a doctor um, <laughs> but yeah so you you know they, these things can be a couple of different things they can yeah. be um they could be um a fibroid they can be you know a benign mass they can be um, an endometrioma around the ovary. They could be endometriosis. They can be all kinds of things. Happily, most of them are not cancer. Mm-hmm. Only 20,000 women only. I mean, for those women, it doesn't feel like an only number, but it's a relatively rare cancer. It's 20,000 women a year are diagnosed, but it's very deadly because these things all kind of look the same and it's, it's a little more challenging to tell the difference between between them. But yeah, this is this is really meant to help doctors have a better tool set to understand when they're looking at something that's benign and is most likely benign and going to go away on its own or just not be a problem versus something that is concerning and needs to be dealt with right away. Yeah. Well, you were saying that when you first heard about the company, you said, I, that test, I've never heard of that test. Um, you know, and I know many women that have cysts. I had a cyst, although I was, it was, I was 13. It was many, many years ago, but I, um, I don't ever remember being like, they're going to do a blood test to test for cancer and stuff. Do you think that this test is still gaining traction in the medical system? Like are doctors still learning about this test and integrating it into their practice? Yeah, yeah. So we launched the the um, the first um, ovarian cancer. So so our our current um, surgical triage test, which is called Oval One Plus, that was launched in its current state in you know late 2018. So going into 2019, we had great momentum. Oh wow! So um, this is and then of recent. Course we all, this is pretty recent. Yeah. 2019. Well, so yeah. our first yeah our first test was launched in in I think 2009, I think or 2000. Either way, but we significantly improved the performance by adding a second blood test as a reflex test, and that was launched in 2018 in its kind of current form. Um, great early adoption. We saw a really nice ramp up. And then of course, you know, launching a test directly into COVID, you know, we had to reset and regroup after COVID because it did take a long time, as we all know, for women to be comfortable going back to the gynecologist, going back to their normal, you know, kind of healthcare routines in 2021. 2022, we saw a real return to kind of normal um, normal volume increases and volume improvements. So, you know, we caught we caught back up um, and now what we're really trying to do is, you know, what, what else has happened in that time? Um, you know, gynecologic um, practices have changed a lot in the last X number of years, right? So, you know, you, you do still have some large practices that are, you know, or individual doctors that are on their own. But in a lot of cases, they're kind of coming together into physician groups mm-hmm. or they're um, kind of aligning themselves with the health system. And the process for introducing a new product to that kind of an environment is very different than what we were doing when we were selling the test in 2018. So we had to evolve our sales process as well and our educational process um, and do a lot more physician education. And I will say, this is a pretty advanced technology. Um, This is, you know, especially with our latest test, Overwatch, it's truly personalized medicine. 
because not only does it measure the proteins in the blood and then, you know, use those proteins um, to kind of, that's how we identify if there's a malignancy risk, right? The, the proteins behave a certain way in relation to each other. We have a very advanced algorithm that was developed using uh, machine learning. Um, and this is a pretty new technology. So it's not just about convincing physicians to step back from something that they're comfortable with, even though it hasn't been terribly effective for the last X, you know, 40 years, um, they're comfortable with it. So first you have to get them to open their mind to that. And then you have to help them understand how the technology works um, because it's, it's biomarkers and age of menopausal status. So that risk score for that woman is for that particular date and time um, for that particular mass, right? So, you know, it's it's a it's a couple of steps of education. And when you're talking to a health system or a physician group, you kind of got to get the medical policy, you know, at the top and then kind of work your way down. So it's been a challenging environment to introduce something really cutting edge and new, but um, I'm super excited by the momentum we're seeing and, and the response we're, we're seeing now from um, the larger physician groups. Has your test changed the treatment um, paradigm for patients? Do you have any example, uh, like case studies? Oh, yeah, we have lots of case studies. Um, you know, we have a, a growing number of, um, of physicians who uh, will talk a lot about specific cases where, um, you know, and, and one that's really interesting, too, so that we hear a lot about, you know, I, I ran a single biomarker test, the CA-125, which was the standard of care. Important to note that that's never been approved or studied for use as an initial clinical assessment tool. It was launched as a recurrence monitoring tool, but doctors in the absence of having anything else were using it off-label for this purpose. But a lot of research has said that it's not effective for that purpose. So, um, you know, we talked to doctors who say the CA-125 score said normal, our test said high risk, and then, of course, they removed the, the mass and it was malignant. Right. So, you know, we hear a lot of those. Um, but, you know, we also hear doctors saying things like, um, you know, I had a patient who, um, you know, in the past, I probably would have, I didn't think it was malignant, but I didn't want to risk keeping the ovary. So I would have just taken the ovary and the mass at the same time. Whereas now, if I have a low score um, from uh, one of the OVASWE tests, I feel comfortable taking the mass and preserving the ovary. I don't feel like I'm actually um, ex ex uh, creating additional risk for that patient, right? So it's about, um, for me, it's it's about giving more choices and giving the women the data they need to have some agency over the decision that they're making. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, data-driven. Yeah. What are some of the risk factors for ovarian cancer? Well, family history, of course, is always um, important, um, you know, and, and I think there are a lot of the sort of general health risks that we know about, obesity, et cetera. I think it's important to also think about the symptoms. We hear all the time, it's the silent killer, there's no symptoms. That's not really true. I think um, there was a study that was done last year, a survey where a, a, a huge majority of women had said that they did have symptoms in advance of being diagnosed with ovarian cancer. Um, the, the issue is that they're, they're consistent with other things, right? So bloating, um, painful periods, painful sex, like these are things that can align to lots of things. Um, so the, the important part is don't ignore those things. Um, yes, they're um, indicative of other things like a, like a, um, a um, UTI or other things. 
go to your doctor, especially if you're older. I know women my age and older tend to say, I don't want to go to the gynecologist, but you still have to go. (laughs) And if you have those symptoms, you go. And if you have a mass, ask your doctor to run a test like ours to understand the risk that there's a malignancy there. Hmm. Um, Do you think that this should be like an annual test then for people with genetic uh, risk? Could this be like an annual panel? Yeah. It's really not. It's not a screening test. So what you're describing would be like a pap smear where everybody has it, like a screening test. Our our algorithm was designed to identify ovarian cancer risk in women with masses. So all of the samples we used in the development and the, you know, the machine learning algorithm that we created um, was using, um, you know, symptomatic women, so women with a mass. Um, there are, you know, there, you really do have to have that symptom. Uh, no one has developed a, an effective screen for ovarian cancer, mm. hopefully someday, but, uh, mm. not yet. Yeah. What was the journey like getting a FDA clearance for something like this that had never been in existence before? Cause FDAs usually use pre-existing things to kind of compare your data to. So a lot of women's health companies face being the first ever and they got to prove everything. Right. Um, so yeah. tell us a little yeah. bit about that journey. So um, that was before my time, but I but it's kind of company legend. So I can t- talk a little bit about it. Um, you know, I do think that you know the FDA is appropriately um, risk averse when it comes to um, things that are uh, related to something that can kill somebody, right? So you know there is a lot at stake for saying this ovarian cancer blood test will. Um, you know, drive decisions about a woman's, um, you know, uh, care pathway. And there's a lot at stake. So, you know, I I think that they're, you know, usually appropriately um, skeptical and they apply the right level of diligence. But, um, you know, we had a lot of data and a lot of research. Um, The original test was actually um, designed uh, with um, John Hopkins um, University, so, you know, a lot of really advanced academic minds, we're actually now partnering on our next generation of tests with Dana-Farber and a consortium of other academic institutions. So, you know, really high quality science and research that went into the development of the test. So we were able to get through that, um, get through that process. Um, so, you know, I think that where a big challenge was with our first test was the, the label um, that they were willing to. So, so again, it's, that was a surgical triage test. So, um, you know, it was a little more limited. And when we launched it, we heard from doctors that they want a tool that they, they liked the test. They found it very helpful when it's when they're in a situation where they're looking at surgery, what they wanted was something to complement that when they weren't quite ready to refer a woman to surgery. And so we, that's how we launched our second, um, test overwatch, which is for initial clinical assessment that we launched as a, as a lab developed test. Um, so we were able to, to launch that as part of our Ovisuite um, uh, test uh, portfolio as a lab developed test. Um, what uh, is the business model then? Was there a billing code that existed for this? Once again, just like regulatory, yeah, you have to yeah, go through stuff yeah. the first time, you got to prove all these things. Similarly, insurance runs on billing codes. And if a solution's never existed, there usually isn't a code for it. Is that something that Aspira had to do? Yeah, yeah. And we have codes for our tests and it's really important. Um, and I have to say, you know, um, especially with our most recent tests, we were able to get a PLA code 
Um, you know, I think a lot of people have been impressed in how fast we're able to do that, but I think it does speak to the need, the unmet need and, and the, um, the physician groups, uh, or the physicians in practice recognizing that they need tools like this, non-invasive tools, um, that are cost-effective. You know, more broadly, I'll say that, you know, navigating the reimbursement landscape has been really tough. Um, and I don't think we're unique at all. Uh, I think all diagnostics, especially, you know, I'm not going to say women's health over uh, maybe a little bit more, but I think all diagnostics really struggle. There's not a really well-defined process to follow. So every payer seems to have their own, you know, um, preferences for what kind of data, how much data. Um, you know, if you're a relatively small company, they won't talk to you unless you hire a consultant to go talk on your behalf which is expensive and um, time consuming. And, you know, it's really frustrating. And, and I think that, you know, what we're going to really need to push for, um, women's health companies need to come together and really push for a better roadmap for um, commercial payer coverage, mm -hmm. right? The, the CMS pathway is pretty clear. We know how to do that. Um, but when it comes to commercial payers, it's just unrealistic, to expect, you know, um, to go to, you know, 25, 30 different payers and get there because, you know, they say, oh, well, come, you know, come to us and we'll tell you what we need. Is it realistic to say you're going to be able to do that with 30 or, you know, 40 different payers? They're all going to have a slightly different idea of what they want. You don't have a bottomless pit of money to do studies and these take years. And, you know, so I think I'd really love to see the payer community step up and give, clearer guidance and roadmaps um, as to, you know, how we can navigate that. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, um, that has been a struggle. So what we've done within Aspira is we have pushed really hard. Um, we never turn a woman away. So, you know, we do have Medicaid coverage in I think six or seven states now, um, but we don't turn anybody who needs the test away. And if they can't pay, we offer financial assistance. So our job has been, we got to make money on the test with whatever we're able to get in reimbursement. And mm -hmm. so that's been a really important focus for me and my leadership team. You know, we're at about a 60% margin on the test, which is pretty darn good, um, but we're not giving up. We're still, you know, we're pushing the commercial payers who aren't covering. Um, we're pushing them really hard to, to kind of get with the program because their their beneficiaries deserve access to this test. Yeah. Is there something our listeners could do that could encourage their insurance companies to cover tests like this? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to, you know, call and and ask, do you cover the the um Obasui tests, Oval One Plus and Overwatch? I mean, the more people that call, certainly that that go doesn't go unnoticed. Um, but I think even more importantly, I would say um if you if your doctor isn't familiar with the test, um, you can reach out to us. We have a link on our website. We can find you a doctor in your area that is familiar with the test. Um, and I think that's one thing that you could definitely do. And, you know, again, we don't turn anybody away that needs the test. So, you know, um, if you need the, if you have a mass and you want the test, you can reach out to us and we'll help you find a doctor who, who is familiar with it. Amazing. And you're hard at work making other tests, right? Yes, absolutely. Why don't you, you tell know, us about no... those? <laughs> so it's really interesting. Um, you know, the negative controls that you use when you develop a test like we have for ovarian cancer can be pretty informative. So, um, you know, when you develop a test and you have, you know, you're, you have your cancers and then you have all your negative controls. And what we started to see saying we, but let's face it, um, you know, I'm not a scientist. So what the scientists started to see 
was in patterns with some other um, disease states and in particular endometriosis and endometrioma. Um, when we had a negative control that um, was endometriosis, the data looked very different. And we, we started to be um, pretty optimistic that we could uh, create a new algorithm pointed at endometriosis that would identify, um, identify endometriosis. Now, Endometriosis is a whole, um, very similar in that it affects um, affects women, um, and in particular, their ovaries. About forty something percent of all endometriosis um, does ultimately result in an endometrioma, which is you know a, a mass on your ovary that's related to endometriosis. Um, but endometriosis is just an absolutely devastating, um, debilitating disease for most women. Um, unlike ovarian cancer, which affects um, you know, get the risk goes up as you get older. Um, it's very rare to be diagnosed with endometriosis that needs some sort of a treatment, you know, as you kind of approach menopause. Mm-hmm. It affects you your whole, typically, um, can affect you your whole uh, menstruating life. So what that means is we have girls in their, you know, very early teens who have, you know, debilitating pain, when they have their period, um, you know, just for, for background, I know that a lot of your listeners are smarter than the average bear about what these things are, but for those who aren't familiar, endometriosis is when um, tissue that's similar to the lining of the uterus, it, 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 um, it forms somewhere else in your body, typically in your pelvic cavity somewhere, but it could be literally anywhere. I mean, it could be on your colon, it could be on your bladder, it can be on your ovaries. It's just kind of attached to something and that might be benign, um, except that it behaves the same way during your menstrual cycle um, outside of your uterus as it does when it's inside your uterus. So it can be incredibly painful. Um, what's also really fascinating, though, is that the level of pain is not indicative to the stage of the disease or the extent of endometriosis because mm-hmm. some women just don't have painful periods. And so they don't have painful endometriosis. Wow, I really never considered that there could be endometriosis that would be silent, you know, painless endometriosis. But you're right. I mean, if it's the same tissue as the uterus and you're someone who doesn't have painful periods, that that could be the case. So how does your how does your test fit into all this? Yeah, yeah. So essentially right now, um, you know, there is um, only one way to definitively diagnose endometriosis, and that is by an invasive procedure, a laparoscopy. Um, either visual visualization or histologically confirmed, but either way, you have to kind of, you know, general anesthesia go in and and find it, right? So, um, you know, our goal is to create a, a, a set of tools for non-invasive identification of endometriosis, um, which are you know blood tests using very similar technology and algorithms that have been trained to identify endometriosis in patients. So um, that's. That's what we're working on right now. That you know, right as a result of this invasive procedure being the only way to definitively diagnose, it takes years for most women to um, have a an answer as to what's causing the pain if they have it. Um, so it's really it's it's really a desperately needed tool. Yeah, I mean it's it's revolutionary. We hear about it all the time on the show about endometriosis being one of those like top of the top of the list things. Like we got to figure this out because the current yeah. the current state is unacceptable. Um, I'd love to just get you know as a CEO of a publicly traded uh, women's health company in gynecological care, just a few questions about what you where you think we're at in terms of the state of our care. Like, what would you describe as where we're currently at? In oh terms boy, of gynecological care. How are we yeah. doing? Well, 
It's a little bit of a complex question. I'd say overall, I think we're doing better because younger women are um, very comfortable doing their own research, asking for other opinions. They don't take, um, you know, they don't take an answer at face value. And that's Mm -hmm. amazing. That was a really important um, sea change, I think, that started with my generation, but certainly my daughters. I have two teenage daughters. Oh my gosh, they'd kill me for saying that. They're in their 20s now. They're not teenagers anymore. <laughs> I have two two daughters in their 20s. They um, are very comfortable doing their own research and asking a lot more questions um, mm-hmm. before they agree to a procedure. So that's amazing. As far as the healthcare system itself, not great. I mean, I can't give us anything better than a, than maybe a C minus, right? On one hand, um, you know, we have great doctors in this country. We have great health systems in this country, but the just level of dysfunction is pretty severe in terms of, you know, how do we encourage innovation? How do we make sure that innovative products are, um, are that everybody has access to them um, to make sure that the health insurance companies are held accountable for providing the best possible care to their beneficiaries? I mean, their only motivation now is, frankly, financial. So, um, you know, that is not great. <laughs> and I'm and I'm not really sure exactly, you know, what the right next step is. Um, what I do know is that, you know, American systems can bump along being pretty horrible and dysfunctional. Like we saw that with the banking sector, which is I spent a fair amount of my time when I was running the governance practice at Deloitte. Um, you know, uh, we we accepted unacceptable until the point where we couldn't accept it anymore. And we made a lot of really important changes. Now, I hope that we're almost to that point. Yeah. I don't know what, what it's going to take, but we are definitely not there yet. The system really is failing women. You look at, you know, maternal um, health care in this country is like embarrassing. It's it's embarrassing that we are in the company that we're in when it, when you look at, you know, maternal death in the United States of America. Unacceptable. It's just unacceptable. There's no two ways about it. Um, you know, any woman who needs a mammogram should be able to get a mammogram. You know, I, because I'm a breast cancer survivor and I live in a pretty diverse community, I will often be approached by, you know, friends and of my daughters or friends of mine who say, I don't have any health insurance. I need to get a mammogram. I, something's wrong. And so even with all the connections that I have and all the knowledge that I have, it is a multi-day, multi-phone call process just to get somebody a mammogram. How can that possibly be? But um, if you don't have insurance, you know, that's where we are. And so that's, I, I, I think we've got a lot of work to do. Um, and that's why, you know, I, I'm saying for us and for um, other uh, women's health companies, but really other, you know, innovative companies, you've got to be prepared to make money um, even if the system is working against you. And we're proving that you can. 60% margin on our test is pretty darn good. Yeah. And you know, as you said, and as a CPA, having worked in banking and stuff, what do you think about the economic burden of this lack of gynecological care? Because it's not just, and my experience running Femtech Focus and Fem Health Insights is if I run out into the streets and say, it's the right thing to do, I don't really see movement. But when I run out into the streets and I say, you can make a ton of money if you invest in women's health, or there's look at all this opportunity, look at the market value, people all of a sudden say, okay, yeah, I'll give it a try. And so besides yeah. just like it's, a devastating thing that a woman can't get a free mammogram, what would the economic burden be of her not being able to access these things? Well, the economic burden is, is, I think, pretty 
well known. I mean, especially when you look at um, endometriosis, I think the latest studies that we had showed that the out of pocket, the direct cost to a woman is, you know, at least 12,000 a year plus another 16. So it's big. You know, I'm going to turn that question around a little bit and say, what is my advice to um, how do we deal with that? Because we can't all just sit around and wait for the system to get better. I will say that one of the reasons that I took this role at Aspira and one of the reasons that I think we are really poised for success is that, you know, I, I came in and I enforced a level of financial and spending discipline, operational discipline that maybe um, early stage companies in healthcare have not felt particularly, um, um, you know, committed to in the past, right? So, you know, you look at the way people would spend money, they, you, they do these big raises, right? Mm-hmm. You get your series A, whatever, big money, you burn through it, raise more money, burn through it, you yeah. know, um, going public when you've got a really long runway before you have a commercial product, not a great idea. Like being a public company is a big deal, you should not go there until you are ready. Um, and I would say, you know, commit yourself to building the proper infrastructure so that you can make money uh, lying on the system to, you know, feed you an ever-increasing price per test because that's just not the environment we're in. You mm-hmm. have to figure out how do I hold the line on costs, become, you know, really the envy of the industry. One of my goals, I want to be the envy of the industry when it comes to our cost infrastructure and the cleanliness of our operations. I don't want to waste a penny. I I say all the time, you know, I think people get sick of hearing me say it. In our company, I say, we spend money like it's our money. Like I asked you to go to the ATM and take it out of the bank. And I think that kind of spending discipline has been missing in early stage companies. And I would encourage early companies you know, hold on to that, spend that cash very, very carefully and don't be in a rush to be a public company. Don't even be in a rush to get taken out necessarily, right? So I know that people want their exits, but the best exits are the ones where everybody makes a lot of money. And that comes from being disciplined and being patient and and not taking the easy way out. Mm. Um, that That would be my advice. I love that. I tell companies, some of my advice that I give them is don't quit your day job yet. Right. So I'm like, you can't just rely on having investors fund you. And then within a year you're out of money, you know, like Mm -hmm. a lot of our founders are moms and wives and, you know, partners and have other responsibilities. And I'm like, keep your day job until you can figure out this revenue, especially if you're direct to consumer. I don't care how many surveys you've done until someone starts paying for your product. You haven't really proven the market fit yet. Right. So, yeah, I um, agree a hundred percent. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. And, you know, um, patience is so important. Um, you know, when I first took on this role, I met with a, a, a couple of different CEOs and diagnostics. I mean, I I've been very fortunate to have some great mentors uh, that have given me really good advice. And one um, CEO who's been very successful in diagnostics said, you're going to have to be comfortable being uncomfortable because if you're not, you're going to make decisions that are going to really hurt you in the long run just to kind of feel a little bit better in the moment. Those decisions will carry, you know, for, you'll have to live with them for a really long time. And he was talking about, this particular person was talking about um, sort of kind of feeling pressured into taking on more debt than he was really necessarily didn't necessarily need it all right then, but you know, had been kind of thinking it will help the stock price at that time and things like that. And he said, you know, it was just um, made me feel better for a little while, but long term it really hurt. And there's no shortage of people who are willing to give you bad money 
Mm. I mean, they, I mean, the, I can tell you, they'll always find a way to get theirs, right? You'll, you'll qualify really for that deep. credit card. You'll, you'll qualify yeah, for that exactly. credit card, right? It's yeah. no different in this space than it is, you know, um, don't do anything in your business that you wouldn't do personally. And if it, if it looks predatory, don't take it. Yeah, <laughs> It might feel better for a second, but you got to live with those consequences for a long time. So be a little comfortable with being just um, uncomfortable and be patient. That's right. Oh, well, Nicole, this has been such an amazing interview. Do you have a last word about the future vision of Aspira? Um, no, I would just ask, you know, if you're, if you're a, a successful woman and you have money in your portfolio, I mean, the, the data suggests that women make the majority of the investment decisions in their households, find space in your portfolio for companies that are focused on women's health. Yeah. Um, if you don't do it, we can't continue to just rely on male investors to fund this. We got to do it ourselves. You know, I was not a big investor. I mean, I didn't have a ton of money. But when I learned about Aspira, I invested in the company and I do that today with other companies when I hear, you know, that there's other things that are out there. So we've got to do it. We've got to do it ourselves. We can't, um, you know, this is not a man bashing. I've got, as I said, amazing support from my male shareholders, but, you know, I think they're also frustrated. Where are the women? Why are there no women, um, you know, large female shareholders? Um, we got to do better. We got to do better. Yeah. Well, I love it, Nicole. Thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you. This has been great. Thank you for listening to my interview with Nicole Sanford, CEO of Aspira Women's Health. Learn more at AspiraWH.com. That's Aspira, A-S-P-I-R-A-W-H.com. Okay, Fem fans, it's time to get engaged. If you love the show, then you'll definitely enjoy reading our weekly newsletter. Subscribe at femhealthinsights.com. While there, you can also join our virtual community, which has over 1,000 femtech founders, investors, and advisors you can get insights and feedback from. We have an active events calendar, jobs board, and much more. Please give our social channels for Femtech Focus and Fem Health Insights a follow. The links are in the show notes. And don't forget, sharing is caring. Send this show to a friend or colleague and keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness. Mm-hmm.